Hello everyone, it's me again, Trev, for another episode of the WN Movie Talk podcast. What's the WN stand for, Trev? We need. So it used to be we need to talk about movies, but now it's WN. Anyway, this week I'm here to talk about 1989 Tim Burton directed superhero movie Batman. The game changer, really. When superhero movies start to get serious, I say that. The Superman one already done that, hadn't it? It was over 10 years before Superman had come out. And yeah, this was really the next big superhero event film. And it was massive. I remember at the time when Batman came out, you couldn't escape it. What would I have been? 10 when Batman came out. Just turned 10 as well. I think it was released on my birthday week. But it was a 12 at the cinema. I remember the certificate coming. They didn't want it to become a 15, so they created the 12 just for Batman. And also Gremlins 2 was another one that was an early 12. Now, the reason I'm talking about Batman is because this week I popped into a charity shop and there, up upon the shelf, was the uh, Blu-ray anthology, Batman anthology. So, uh, the four films, Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. Now, well, Batman Forever, I must say, I, I did fairly enjoy it when it first came out. I think mean, that was quite a hit as well, wasn't it? And they took it in a bit of a different direction. Batman and Robin... No, not really bothered about. I walked out of the cinema when that came on, actually. But Batman and Batman Returns, Tim Burton films. Now, I haven't seen them for years, but the box set in Blu-ray is worth getting just for the special features on Batman and Batman Returns. Uh, there's loads. Um, if I just go through it, I've watched a few of the documentaires. I've watched the film as well, and I've watched it with the audio commentary as well. So I've really just absorbed Batman from start to finish, really. And then watch the films with my son. Me and my son have sat down to watch all four. He's playing the Dark Knight games and that. And so he wanted to see the Batman films. Actually, his favourite was Batman Forever out of the others. And we got um, 20 minutes into Batman and Robin. He walked out. So there you go. It's a lasting uh, legacy that film's got, isn't it? But anyway, yeah, not only has it got the director's commentary... Tim Burton, uh, Legends of the Dark Knight, the history of Batman. It sort of looks back at the Batman saga over the years from the comic books into the films. Um, and then there's Shadows of the Bat, the cinematic saga of the Dark Knight, parts one to three. So there's three episodes on the first disc. And then as you go through the other discs, this series continues. It's really great. Um, so I just love all that anyway. But it got me thinking, oh, I've reviewed Batman before for an old YouTube channel that I had. And I must admit, when I watched it back then, I hadn't seen it for ages then. It used to be one of my favourite films when I was a kid. I was absolutely obsessed with Batman. We only had it on a pirate copy. I remember I couldn't get in the cinema, so we watched it for a pirate copy. And I think it didn't look right because it was such a filthy copy. And I sort of helped, my imagination helped to create images, certain images. I don't know if that had any effect on my review that I'd done 10 years ago but I suppose the Dark Knight the Chris Nolan films had just come out as well and I watched back the original Batman 1989 and yeah I didn't give it a very glowing review I'm going to share that old review with you here now and then um, I'll come back after and review the review <laughs> briefly and then we'll get on with discussing Batman 1989 on my own we've got no company again so I hope you don't mind me doing these on my own I hope you still enjoy them Anyway, here we go. Here's my review of Batman from 10 or 12 years ago. The 
film began. A family of tourists dressed for the 1940s, trying to find their way around Gotham City. They stumble into a back alley where they are mugged. Their muggers then share out the loot and discuss the giant bat that has been rumoured to avenge criminals in the city. No sooner has the confident thief told the not-so-confident thief not to worry, there isn't any bat, they are attacked by none other than the Batman. The scene is hammy and corny, and feels as though it takes place not on the roof of a building, but in a studio somewhere. That being said, it is one of the most visually interesting scenes in the movie. The use of shadow and strange angles shrouding the bat in a mystery that in my mind is uncovered all too soon. Although it was a brilliant reworking with some amazing design, and although I can still remember all the dialogue, if I'm honest it bored me to death. Burton's direction was very discreet in his interpretation of the story of the Cape Crusader. Usually very visual and extrovert, his vision of this movie was reserved, although you can notice certain Burton motifs, like clowns and gothic architecture, the bulk of the movie was cautiously handled. Now this straight reserved direction was a double-edged blade. On the one hand it secured Burton notoriety as an A-list director, and he in turn was granted the freedom to now make the kind of films that he desired, like Edward Scissorhands. The freedom he earned is felt a lot more in the sequel, Batman Returns, which has more Burton in it than this movie does. On the minor side, the movie lacks any real spirit, the plot between the action seems detached and slow paced, and even the film's action sequences seem bland and almost free from adventure. If anything, the action sequences were more like an elaborate series of shots, and therefore also becomes unrealistic. Michael Keaton, who was Burton's choice for the Cape Crusader and not the studios, and I feel I have to agree with the studios on this one. He was static and wooden as Batman, and vague and confused as Bruce Wayne. Jack Nicholson is the show-stealer here, as the manacle, psychotic Joker. Now I know many would deem this sacrilege, but I don't feel that he's gone to any real effort to make the Joker his own. To me, he played it as Caesar Romero had in the old Adam West episodes, just slightly more sinister and not quite so camp. I also can't believe the Joker's story. His dropping into a vat of chemicals may have altered him physically, but then to acquire a whole new wardrobe and a manic comedy complex never really holds sway. They just as well are not bothered to create his story and just assume that we already knew who the Joker was, because Jack Napier to the Joker was a transformation that never really tied up. We meet news reporter Alex Knox, who with his endless, idiotic remarks and jesting becomes the smart Alec. Then we meet the love interest, photographer and bat enthusiast Vicky Vale, who has been in some gruelling war zones but is strangely a girly girl, screaming, jumping, fainting at every turn. It's hard to imagine her photographing war. I love the design of the movie, the suit, the gadgets, the Batmobile, the Batwing, but I can't help but notice that it doesn't feel real when watching any of it on the screen. The models never convince me that they are anything other than models, and nor do the city scenes, like the opening scene. It all looks like a soundstage as opposed to location. One of the best things about the movie is the score. A major Burton collaborator, Danny Elfman, who by now has become one of the most sought-after composers of film and television scores, was in his infancy at this time. Here his score is haunting and thrilling giving us a great sense of atmosphere whilst driving us along with the action. But again, like Burton's direction, it was restrained from his usual mystical qualities. One of the worst things about the movie was its soundtrack album by Prince, and the integration of his songs throughout the movie, killing the atmosphere and pointing out to us the failings of the summer blockbuster, with its commercial trappings and product placements. Scenes almost become music videos, and by now have dated as much as Kim Basinger's costumes. <laughs> Okay, so that was my review, and now I'm going to review my review. That's something I've not done before. 
Something you don't get a lot of. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't very impressed. Maybe it was the frame of mind I was in because I've watched it again and now I'm comparing the two reviews. The 1940s style. Uh, you hear, you hear in the, the uh, documentary, there's a chap called Michael Uslan and he's like one of the executive producers of Batman. He's basically the person who got it all up and running. He got the movie rights secured in 1979, and it took him 10 years to finally see the film on the screen. Now, he wasn't a movie producer. He was a tutor at university. He was one of the first people to teach comic books in university and he wanted the definitive Batman film and I think he finally got what he was after with Tim Burton's style so yeah the 1940s style that Michael Uslan he says that these films as the years progress and Batman changes he says each one reflects a different time in the history of the comics so there's that uh, the way I saw it was they just was making it more cash in smash and grab towards the end the last one Batman and Robin is just like a big commercial the toy companies had a say in the production and the design of everything so that they could make toys to sell alongside it so it was just money bent by then but um i also said that i'd found it boring i was bored watching it this time i must admit i watched it with my son he's playing the games the arkham asylum and all that so he was up for watching it and we watched it together and i enjoyed it a lot more this time around whether that's also because it's in blu-ray it was so crisp and clear just some great shots throughout and i think although i said that burton's vision was hampered by studio involvement it was to an extent but there is some typical Burton styles and motifs and themes throughout the film so I thought there's still enough Burton but as I was talking about the uh, studio involvement Tim Burton obviously being a young man at the time hadn't had a lot of clout behind him Um, but there were certain scenes that they sort of changed as the script went on that you learn through the documentaries like the writer Sam Hamm he always is held responsible for letting Vicky Vale into the Batcave. And he said, I would never have written that. He didn't write that. So that got added through production. But one scene that wasn't in the original script, and they actually just built a set just to film the scene, was the scene in the Belfry at the end where Batman is climbing up the tower to confront the Joker. Now, this was inspired by a film Jack Nicholson had been in scene, and he, there was a big Belfry scene. And he said, that's what we need. So then they wrote and added this scene at the end which I didn't think was too bad a scene, to be honest. I don't know how else they would have ended it. Uh, I thought it was quite a good ending for the Joker and for Batman to be up the top of a tower, you know, an old gothic-y sort of Tim Burton-style building. Uh, it is worth noting, though, that you can tell that this has been chopped around the end of this film when the Joker says, you made me, and the Batman says, you made me, and he said, you killed my parents. And then the Joker says, um, I, I was younger when I killed your parents or something like that. But in the final version, at no point does the Joker realise that he is Bruce Wayne. So this must have been divulged in some footage that now doesn't exist. And, you know, found itself on the cutting room floor. I said Keaton was static and wooden and vague and confused. I bought into him a lot more this time as well. Um... I don't know, I felt the sort of the torture behind him. In the documentary, they talk about why they chose him. Tim Burton really liked the eyes, and he says he's got piercing eyes that need to do all the work behind the mask. And they certainly do that. Um, 
And yeah, I, I felt that his character was a lot stronger watching it this time. So it goes to show you, doesn't it, how your mind, it's all to do with frame of mind films. You might watch a film. One day, you know, it used to be one of my favourite films. And then when I watched it again, I was hugely disappointed. And then this time I've watched it yet again and I've really enjoyed it. Um, I said about Nicholson being more like a sinister Cesar Romero. I still think that he's still got the sort of the manic smokers laugh, dancing around, what have you. I still don't think that there's a connection between Jack Napier and the Joker, the two sides, you know, how he becomes the Joker. You've got to take it with a pinch of salt, I think, when you're watching it. What I did love about the Joker, though, is, I don't know if I loved it or not, but the, like his face is all deformed into that grimacing smile. And I find it really sickly when he's got his face covered in skin-coloured paint. But there's something in the HD that it looks kind of fake. That big grin looks like a plastic grin that he's wearing. It almost looks like something of the Grinch about it. You know, Ron Howard's version of the Grinch, where all the people have those weird plasticky mouths. Reminded me a bit of that. Elfman's score, still great. As I said in that one, though, there wasn't the sort of the playfulness so much really comes through in Batman Returns when Tim Burton was allowed to make the film, the Batman film that he wanted. And Batman Returns, if you're a fan of early Tim Burton stuff, it's definitely a Tim Burton film as much as it is a Batman film, more so than Batman. You know, there's something in both Tim Burton's direction and Danny Elfman's musical score in Batman Returns. There's something more whimsical and mysterious about it. And it's, you know, the from the opening scenes with... The Cobblepot's getting rid of the Penguin. You know, you can tell straight away, this is Tim Burton. This is Danny Elfman. This is their pairing. Uh, I said in the review as well that the Prince soundtrack was appalling. I still believe that. There's nothing that any of the Prince songs bring to the film. They all sound out of place. It's just another way of Warner Brothers making money, releasing an album from a contracted artist. Um, The Party Man scene... The music seems kind of empty. It's, I don't know, the whole scene just seems a bit strange. When he, they're coming into the, the museum, Vicky Vale's got the gas mask in, they, they've gassed everyone else, and the Joker and his goons, are all, they're all running around, dancing as they're coming in. They just look like grown men, hamming it up. It's a bit of a strange scene. But yeah, that was my review of my review. Anyway, I will now continue to sort of analyse Batman in some more depth. So the opening of the film, it starts, title sequence, Annie Elfman's score. It's as iconic and memorable as the Adam West theme, you know. It became synonymous with Batman. It became the theme tune for the uh, Batman the Animated Series, which was also great. But the opening credits is dark, it's cold, it's stony. You're going around what looks like caves at first. You think, is it the Batcave? And then it turns out it's a concrete bat symbol the logo much darker than we've seen from the tv show of the past and we're straight into gotham city now this is filmed at pinewood studios i said in my previous review that it looks fake it does in some places it looks fake it doesn't look as fake as any of the other batman films that follow so out of the four this one having just watched them all looks the most realistic um But there's some great wide-angle shots and one of many impressive matte paintings. There's some great matte paintings throughout the film. I mean, now everything's done digitally. But back then, if you wanted to design a massive building or like, you know, your Axis chemical plants or have Gotham City sort of from a distance, you had to use matte paintings. And there there was some really good matte paintings throughout this film. 
So the first shots of Gotham, it's dark, it's dingy, but it is so crammed. Everyone is on those streets. There hundreds of extras they would have had to use in this sequence. The streets seem really compact with loads going on. When you look down the street, the buildings, it just, it all seems really compressed. You can hear the first utterance of a Prince song playing in the background from the soundtrack album, The Future. And that's a line that comes up through the film a lot. So that was obviously, you know, he's had the screenplay to work on. And they think about the future. Jack Nicholson asks that all the time. He asks it to Eckhart. He asks it to Bruce Wayne. Um, so that's where this song, The Future, comes from. Anyway, it's playing in a beatbox in the background. That didn't seem so out of place It's as it's takes more of a front seat the music that it begins to seem a bit sort of wedged and a bit <laughs> a bit tactless and sort of takes you out of the film when it comes in but we'll discuss that as we go so we said Gotham City looks like the 1940s 50s everyone's walking around in trilbies but it's sort of like a meld between the modern day and the old you know there's it in its vision it doesn't look like the 50s, but it doesn't look like the 80s either. It's sort of somewhere in between. You're following that family around Gotham City. The little boy's got the map. The dad's like getting restless. They're going the wrong way. They're lost in this city. Now, if you're coming into this from like, you know, you know the comics, then maybe this scene is misleading because you're seeing this. It's two parents with a child coming out of the theatre or out of the cinema. The first thoughts you're probably going to have is, oh, this is Bruce Wayne and his his parents. This is the origin story. But it's a bit of a red herring because as we find out, we're going to explore the origin story in a quicker sense. We're not going to have to sit through 45 minutes of him becoming Batman. We're straight in with the action. So anyway, they're lost. They're weaving their way through the troubled streets of Gotham City. Now, the last thing they want to do is walk down that dingy, dark alley. Whatever made them think that that was going to be a good idea. But they did. And they meet two unsavory characters, two two criminals. And I don't know, I never really noticed this in the past. So now I'm watching this in Blu-ray and I'm thinking, oh my God, they look disgusting. They look like they're on solvents. They got sore lips saw bits around their nose and the makeup is really impressive really it's it really is disgusting it's quite gross one of these actors as well i recognized him watching it this time straight away and i was like that's mate yeah out of the same pet and he is he's the one who goes what are you and then michael keaton says i'm batman but yeah, he's a, an actor called Christopher Fairbank, and he was one of the one of the actors in the old Alfreda Saint Pet series. And he's the first of many British actors to sort of pop up in this film. There's another actor I noticed in it is uh, the the illustrator for the newspaper for the Gotham Planet or whatever the paper's called, and he gives Ele Alexander Knox the photo of the bat, the Batman, and it's basically a bat in a suit. And if you look at the bottom corner, it's signed by Bob Kane. So I assume that this sketch of the Batman was actually done by Batman's creator, Bob Kane, for the film. Unless it is just a nod to Bob Kane. Anyway, not talking about that. I'm talking about the actor who plays Bob, the artist. I recognised him straight away. I was like, that's Cassandra's dad out of Only Fools and Horses. And then later on, one of the Joker's goons, uh, the big sort of... The bigger guy, not the big guy with the big moustache, the bald-headed bloke, but one like the fatter, tubbier bloke, is also the captain at the original series of Red Dwarf. He actually comes back in the later series as well, don't they, where they're on the prison ship. Captain, oh, what the hell was his name? Hollister? I think it's Hollister. But yeah, so the actor who plays him, he's an American actually. But 
I was thinking, why are there so many English actors in this? This is weird. But it's because it's filmed in Pinewood, isn't it? So it's all filmed over here. It's all the support in roles, even though they're playing Americans. Most of them are British. So anyway, yeah, you see a, a bird's eye view of the buildings and you're looking down onto the streets and you see Batman's silhouette from above with his shadow and he moves his cape and it looks animated and it looks sort of whimsical like a, a timber and animation doesn't look quite like it belongs there so then you got the, the two criminals anyway they're sharing out the loot and in the background you see batman come down with his wings out it sort of lands and then folds his wings up and my son at this point he's 11 years old he went cringe so he, he didn't buy that bit but it made me think you see the batman very early on in this film it's straight into it you do get the backstory but you haven't got to go through this massive sort of plot line to get to it you're straight in in the action there's batman you see him full fully clothed in his suit there's no re surprise no reveal but i suppose there doesn't need to be because the advertising for batman there was pictures of batman and the joker everywhere there's no hiding the suit so there was no need to sort of take your time to unveil him i suppose um but yeah my son saying that that shot was cringe i remember that being amazing when we first watched it because all you'd seen at this point on the tv any sort of batman was adam west in that ridiculous sort of gray suit just a man in tights all of a sudden you've got this leather clad dark mean looking helmet he's got the logo i, I love the original batman logo which he, which he wears the emblem and it's got the free it's got the, like the tail with the, the two hooky bits either side which you've never seen before or after i really really like that logo it suited the suit it made it different apparently it was uh to do with copyright they couldn't get a copyright of the logo for a long time whilst they were filming it wasn't till post-production or midway through filming so at the, that stage that's why the design of the bat symbol has the three prongs on the tail and then Batman confronts these two criminals, scares the wits out of them, tells them to tell his friends about them. So the next sort of scenes, we meet in the mayor, Commissioner Gordon, Commissioner Gordon, played by Pat Hingle. Incidentally, only one of two actors who appears in all four films, the other one being Michael Goff as Alfred. The only ones who are consistent throughout these four films to tie them together as one sort of coherent Batman, I suppose. But we also meet Billy D. Williams, Lando Corrizian, as you well know from Empire Strikes Back, playing Harvey Dent, who, by Batman Forever, is played by Tommy Lee Jones when he becomes Harvey Two-Face, which I wonder what they had in mind originally with Harvey Dent. Why bring him into this this early on? Was they originally going to do a Two-Face in the sequel before Tim Burton sort of had free reign of what to do and decided to go Penguin and Catwoman? I don't know, but he turns up in the third film and he's played by Tommy Lee Jones. It's completely different casting. I can't imagine Billy D. Williams playing something as manic as Tommy Lee Jones's Two-Face, uh, but it would have been quite interesting. If all these films had stayed in this style of the original, it would, things would have panned out a lot different. So I suppose that Two-Face may have been a bit darker, a bit more serious. By the time you get to Batman Forever... It's all getting a bit more cartoony again. It's not much different than the old 60s series, is it? But anyway, they're giving a press conference, which is going out on the news. They're trying to clean up Gotham City and destroy the, the gangs, which is where we meet, finally, Jack Napier, Jack Nicholson. He's lounging around with Jerry Hall, who her character, Alicia, 
is the uh, partner of Jack Nicholson's boss, Cole Grissom, played by Jack Palance, who we hear mentioned a lot before we meet him. So he they build up that that character, the power of the character. So let's talk about Jack Nicholson for a minute as the Joker. Uh, and as Jack Napier, as I said, there's no sort of coherence between the two for me. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You'd have just as well started with the Joker already as a villain, maybe as a crime boss. But Jack Nicholson plays Jack Napier very stern, very moody, brooding. He's quiet, he's thoughtful. I don't mean thoughtful as inconsiderate, but you can see he's always thinking things through. There's a lot going on behind the uh, the face and the mind there, but it just doesn't meld to the Joker. Whereas he's great casting, I'm not saying that. And at the time, I think they wanted Jack Nicholson from the outset to play the Joker. The studios, Tim Burton, everyone thought, yeah, he's got that manic side to him, especially after seeing him sort of in The Shining and he is just playing it crazy. They did offer it, I heard, I've read this somewhere that they offered it to Robin Williams and Robin Williams accepted it. He jumped at the chance, but they'd only offered it to Robin Williams in order to lure Jack Nicholson. So Robin Williams was a bit sort of put out by that. And when they came to make Batman Forever, they wanted the Riddler. They asked Robin Williams if he'd be in it and he turned it down. So he wasn't going back there being played for a fool. Uh, another casting choice, which I thought was interesting, was um, another character in the film who almost wasn't played by Billy D. Williams, is Harvey Dent. Um, the, the role had also been offered to Ray Liotta, who, I don't know if he turned it down or what, but he went on to play Henry Hill in Goodfellas. So thank God that happened, because what a great film Goodfellas is. Still to this day, a favourite of mine. But the Joker in this film, he's, I say he's like Cesar Romero, and that's just in the way he sort of acts and jumps around. Um, clowns about, I suppose. But he is pure evil. There's nothing nice about him you know he's killing people left right and center he's he's using the chemicals to make sort of a, a chemical lottery with all the uh household sprays and detergents and makeup and stuff which is really funny how that pans out because he's you see them reporting it on the news the death of these two models and you see they've got the, the stretched out smiling faces they've gone all white like the joker has um and uh, as they're reporting it, and then he interferes with the show, with the news report, and he comes in, it's his own little video that he's sort of put together, advertising his new Joker killing Joker products. And it's quite sinister, the way it's done, and you've got the two supermodels there, and he's superimposed talking mouths over their bodies. It's quite dark how that happens, but then it's funny as the, News reports carry on later on. You see the the, the reporters are dishevelled and, uh, you know, their hair's a mess. They're wearing no makeup. They got they look all scabby, just as scabby as the, the two criminals at the beginning scene. And it's quite, I think that's hilarious, really. But it does go to show, you know, the Joker is, he's really sick. He finds it hilarious that he's just torturing this town in such a way. And I mean, later on, you know, he ends up gassing the city as well. You know, he has the parade and he's got those massive balloons, the hideous baby and the, the weird clown, completely Tim Burton designed images there, you know. Uh, Alex Knox originally died in the script during that gas. 
the gassing of Gotham. But I think they found his character, the way that um, Robert Wall played him, portrayed him. They found him so endearing that they thought they couldn't kill him off in the end. Um, but then again, you know, the Joker, he's that evil. He, he sprays Alicia's face. You know, he scars her with by spraying her with acid. And then later on, he just kills her because he wants her out of the way so he can move on to Vicky. So he is just a really nasty guy, you know. And then he kills his right-hand man, Bob, as well. And he told Bob, you know, Bob, you're my number one guy. And he says it in this real strange way. And it wasn't until, I hadn't really picked up on this until this time, but that's what, you know, he's taking the mickey out of Carl Grissom, isn't he? Because Grissom says that to Jack Napier as well, and he sends him off with his lucky deck. He's got his hands on his shoulders, and he says, Jack, you're my number one guy. So that's all he's doing. He's, but but he, he really draws it out when he says it to Bob. And then yeah, later on, in the film's sort of final act, he just kills Bob the Goon. Bob the Goon as well, he's a great character. <laughs> just, he's real shifty looking, isn't he? And just... He doesn't really do a lot and he looks really awkward in the scenes as well. I think he's a friend of Jack Nicholson's. I think I heard them say that in the uh, director's commentary and that's how he sort of got the role. But he is in other stuff. Uh, He does turn up in... um, He's in City Slickers, I think. But yeah, the Joker, just proper nasty villain. Proper nasty piece of work. And not afraid to go dark with this movie. But anyway, before he becomes the Joker, he's still Jack Napier. And as Jack Napier, you see him head-to-head with Eckhart, Crooked Cop. Now, Eckhart is played by the late actor William Hootkins. If you think you've never seen him in films before, you're probably wrong. He has had roles in quite a lot of films, some not so great, like uh, Flash Gordon, Superman 4, Quest for Peace. But you would definitely have seen him in as Major Eaton in Raiders of the Lost Ark, or more familiar as uh, Porkins from the original Star Wars film. Now, everyone in this film just looks sort of worn and run down. If they're a bad guy, they look rough. They either look like a gangster, like Jack Nicholson, or if they're a goon or just a, a lowly cop, they look rough and worn. And Eckhart, he just looks tired, bored, scruffy, dirty. He's in this horrible sort of mac. It's all un- unclean shaven. And uh, this is also the first time we meet Alexander Knox, played by Robert Wall, who is the the bat-obsessed journalist who's trying to get this story into the papers. Everyone sort of ridicules him. Eckhart swans off, not giving him anything. And as he goes around the corner, then he meets up with Jack Nicholson. And Nicholson sort of gives him some money. He's trying to, you know, tell him what to do. And Eckhart is like, I don't take, I don't listen to you. I listen to Carl Grissom. So again, strengthening up the power, the, the character of Carl Grissom before we've even met him. But I was saying about you know, at this point as well, we see Bob the Goon, Jack Nicholson's right-hand man. And he looks really untidy, unkempt. At this point, you see his how protective he is when Eckhart raises a gun to Jack Nicholson. Bob the Goon straight in over the top over Nicholson's shoulder with his gun. No one's getting to Jack Nicholson without going through Bob. I mean, that whole scene again, Gotham City, grimy, dirty. And when he meets him in that back alley, there's like smoke coming out of grates. There's rubbish piled up on the screen. Everything looks really dingy. It looks really well done. Now, we give credit to Tim Burton 
for the aesthetic of this film. But it's actually production designer, uh, British production designer, Anton First, who um, he created this Gotham City. You know, everything that you're seeing on the screen was all down to him designing it. Some really good work. He won an Academy Award for his work on this. Previously, he'd worked on a number of films, three that I recognised from his list. High Spirits, which was the Daryl Hannah, Steve Gutenberg sort of spooky comedy from 1987. The Company of Wolves, which I can only... I know I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever, ever seen it. There's not many werewolf films other than American Wolf in London that I have watched, if I'm honest. Um, but he also worked on Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Unfortunately, he passed away uh, two years later in 1991. Well, he was he was with the actress Beverly D'Angelo from the National Lampoon Vacation films. Um, he was quite heavily into drink and drugs, I believe. And after the he split up with Beverly D'Angelo in 1991, and then he took his own life. So a real shame, a real sad, real sad story. Someone on top of his game, probably just about to sort of. Uh, go even further so that was 1991 that was only two years after the amazing success that he had with and quite rightly with his uh, absolutely beautiful work memorable work and lasting work as well on Batman so I say we've seen the iconic Bat costume Bob Ringwood designed it all designed it Bob Ringwood designed all the costumes for Batman before Batman he had done work on Excalibur which is that the the John Borman film? I've never seen it. It's in my collection of films I own that I haven't watched yet. So stay tuned. Uh, he done Dune, David Lynch's Dune, Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun, and Santa Claus the Movie, directed by Jeanette Swark. And then since Batman, he's done Batman Returns, Batman Forever. I notice he's not credited for Batman and Robin. As I said, I think that was more designed in cooperation with the toy companies, which is pretty awful, isn't it? Really. Just, they got what they deserved with that film, I think, don't you? Um, but yeah, he's done Alien Free, Demolition Man, Steven Spielberg's Artificial Intelligence. And then the last film he's credited for, at least on Wikipedia, is Troy. So he's still alive, he's still around, but yeah, he just, uh, that seems to have been, you know, maybe early retirement. I don't know, but yeah, some good costumes in here. You know, he's created a, a good look for Batman. So great looks throughout the film for the Joker. In different costumes. I do really love the Joker's costume when he goes into the scene with Vicky Vale. He's got that beret on. He's always in like the purple suits, but the scene where he goes into the, the museum, that was always my favourite suit of the Jokers when I was younger. I don't know why. Uh, and then, yeah, to create the uh, the suits and the trilbies, that sort of 1940s look throughout. Some, yeah, some good costume design there. Well done, Bob. And then the other sort of wheel in the cog to give Batman the look that it had, as well as uh, Anton First and obviously Tim Burton, was the director of photography, uh, Roger Pratt. Now, another UK citizen, obviously, you know, it's filmed over in Pinewood. It's easier to use all, all British cast and crew. But Roger Pratt had sort of made his bones making films in Britain. Um, a bit of all sorts, really, but he's done some sort of gritty gritty dramas such as uh, Mona Lisa, the Bob Hoskins movie, and uh, High Hopes, which was a, a Mike Lee film. Then he'd done Brazil and uh, Monty Python's A Meaning of Life. 
from his work on Batman, after his work on Batman, he's he's done quite a lot. He's done The Fisher King for Terry Gilliam. So again, he, he's he's a const, an often collaborator with Terry Gilliam, Brazil, Meaning of Life, The Fisher King. He worked on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, starring Robert De Niro, Kenneth Branagh, and uh, the Harry Potter 4 and 5 as well. So what Bob Ringwood and Anton First and Tim Burton were going for with this film is the the aesthetic and the design, the style of the old Bob Kane, the original Bob Kane Batman era. Thematically, tonally, they was trying to encapsulate the comics where the comics were by this time in the 80s. They'd got darker, they'd got deeper, they'd got grittier. The comics of Frank Miller and also the, the Killing Joke which would later go on to inspire the Joker. And I think watching it now, I think they've managed to achieve all of that. So Robert Wall, so he plays um, Alexander Knox, and he's pretty much the comic relief in this movie. Um, I know the Joker is a zany character. It's not really funny. Any comedy we get tends to be from Alexander Knox, his sort of obsession with the bat and everyone sort of taking the mickey out of him. He's always got some witty remark. Um, he's got this sort of childish look in his eye, this childish gleam as well as he does, as he says his lines. And he, you can see he's being playful. And, and obviously, when he meets Vicky Vale, he's trying it on, you know. And uh, even that comes across as sort of comical. I wouldn't say it's laugh out loud hilarious, but it's as close to comic relief as we get in this film. I can't think of any other films i've seen robert wallin except for i'm pretty sure he's in um good morning vietnam with robin williams isn't he um, isn't he the other sort of his sidekick in that but yeah i thought he was good in this film it's quite a, a decent character he's a, a decent chap you know uh just trying to get answers isn't he so there's 200 year celebrations of gotham city the mayor wants to go ahead with it get the banners up you know get people out onto the streets but Commissioner Gordon, he's not so sure. He thinks people will stay away because they're too scared because of what the streets have become. Again, they mention Grisham. Still at this point, we haven't met him. We meet Vicky Vale before we meet Grisham. Um, so she sort of turns up in the, the Gotham Post. I can't remember what the newspaper's called. <laughs> but she turns up there. She's interested in this Batman story. She wants to take photos to put alongside Alexander Knox's words. He thinks someone's taken, sent her to sort of send him up, but she's keen on it. Vicky Vale, uh, Kim Basinger, good Basinger, Basinger. I don't know how you say it. I say Basinger. She's good in this role um, as Vicky Vale. As I said, the character, she, you know, faints and screams and she's a bit of a girly girl. And she's supposed to be this war correspondent. As I said in my previous review, that doesn't quite stick as well. You know, is she tough or not? I don't know. Some things just don't sort of tie up. And that's one of them. Um, originally, she was going to be played by Sean Young, who missed out on the role in the very last minute. It was literally like weeks before shooting was about to commence. She fell off a horse. She damaged herself. She couldn't act. And that was that. She was no longer Vicky Vale. In interviews I've seen with her, she's, you know, that is the moment her career took a turn. It could have gone up. It would have been, you know, stratospheric, but alas, it wasn't to be. So she's 
you know, she she admits that she went to some dark places after sort of missing out on that role, but didn't stop her tr- coming back to try for the role of Catwoman in Batman Returns when she came in for her audition, fully dressed in a leather bondage suit, dressed as the Catwoman, uh, crawling all over the desks and still didn't get the role, you know. Michelle Pfeiffer got that one. So she just missed out of Batman. She just wasn't supposed to be. But yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen enough of Sean Young acting to know if she would have been as good as Kim Basinger. She's just great in the role. There's a good chemistry between her and Bruce Wayne. She's sort of pretty. She, she's not sort of pretty. She's lovely, isn't she, Kim Basinger? But there is a strength to her. She's not a complete damsel in distress. It's... So it's a strange, it's a strange one as well. But yeah, she is good in the role. I will give her that. But finally, then we get to meet Carl Grissom. We start off with a very Burton-esque shot as the camera sort of flies up this this skyscraper. It's a model of a skyscraper, and it doesn't do too much to hide that either. But it goes up this skyscraper and then stops at the penthouse, and this is where we finally meet Carl Grissom, Jack Palance, addressing his men. And also, he's about to set up Jack's demise. You know, Jack says, oh, we need to go to Access Chemicals, clean it all out, burn all the files. Jack Palance like, says, yes, you're going to do that, Jack. I'm going to send you to do that personally. So Jack knows some of its fishies going on. And as he does that, he's playing with his deck of cards. He's always That's the only link between Jack Napier and the Joker is he has a deck of cards in his hand. So he's playing with the cards and jack palance has just said that you go and do this personally then the door of jack palance's apartment opens up in walks jerry hall just in case we didn't get that link and jack nicholson flicks a card up spins it around and alas it's the joker so it's all making sense it's all clicking into place jack palance i didn't know him from the older films i didn't used to watch a lot of the older stuff i knew him from city slickers which i think came out after this Uh, and City Slickers too, but he is great in this. He looks cold and heartless, and he has this sort of power about him. Definitely looks like he could, if anyone can control Jack Nicholson, it's him. You know, if if anyone's got to be Jack Nicholson's boss, it's got to be Jack Palance. So we cut from Carl Grisham scene straight over to uh, the benefit gig at Wayne Manor, where Vicky Vale walking around in that pretty... Sort of almost like a wedding dress, isn't it? She bumps into Bruce Wayne and asks him, do you know who Bruce Wayne is? And he says, no, I'm not sure. And then follows her with this sort of puzzled look. The first time we've met Michael Keaton, he's got his back to us and he just turns around. There was a lot of people against the idea of using Michael Keaton in the uh, Batman originally. They'd seen him in films like Beetlejuice. Yeah, he's good in that. But Mr. Mum was more of a comedian, but there is something about him. Watching it this time round, you definitely notice that he's he's much more of a subdued sort of character. He's trying to keep it low key. You'd think he'd be a bit more famous in Gotham City, but I don't know. There's a there's definitely there's something underlying with him to make him want to turn into a bat and avenge, obviously avenging the death of his parents, but to want to keep that up. I think in these films you don't have the sort of the explanation of how he gets all his gear. Obviously, I think in the comics and in the Christopher Nolan films, you have Lucius Fox, who's designed, built all his gear. It makes sense. In these films, you get the idea it's only Alfred and Bruce Wayne that know this secret. 
and sort of especially in the later Joel Schumacher films, they sort of talk about the suits being knocked together by Alfred. You know, these elaborate armoured suits with nipples in the later ones. And builds Robin a suit. Oh, I've thrown him something together. You know, are we supposed to believe that Alfred was the designer of these suits and the Batmobile and the Batcave and all this technology? It seems a bit far-fetched to believe such a thing. But they don't really establish that in this version. I think what I picked up on with Keaton in this version, he was very much a Tim Burton character. He's obviously, he's got the duality, the two sides, the Batman, the dark and the light. He's fighting with this ego but he doesn't really know himself he doesn't it's like he hasn't got a sense of himself he's a very lonely reclusive man he's not in the limelight like other versions of bruce wayne that we later know he doesn't like to stand out as bruce wayne the billionaire playboy and he is obviously tortured there's a lot of focus on that it's around the time of his parents memorial so you see it you see all that and he's he's reflective of that um but also he's there is a sense of him he's wanting to keep Vicky Vale at a distance and I think this is where it becomes a bit strange where Alfred lets her into the Batcave and I mean they mention it in Batman Returns as well because by then it's been a bit of a sore point people don't think she would have been allowed in the Batcave he possibly wouldn't have let her in not because he wants to keep his identity secret keep to keep her safe but you know he doesn't know himself who he is so he how can he ever let someone else in you know so he's a bit more reluctant but you know he is a good character he's a kind character he's he gets a bit nuts doesn't he you know that scene with the joker he's like you want to get nuts let come on let's get nuts but he's a decent guy he gives alex knox that grant on on his way out but he's not one who wants to stand up on a pedestal so anyway so we've met now bruce wayne and alfred walking around this benefit gig again Alex Knox, trying to get information out of Commissioner Gordon. Now, Commissioner Gordon, this is where we get to see him a little bit better. We get to see him firsthand now. He's at the craps table. He's throwing the dice. He's getting his his lady wife to kiss them for luck. And he gets a call over. At policeman's turned up. And he says, we got a tip off that Axis Chemicals is being cleaned out. And that Eckhart is in charge of that. So Eckhart is sort of under the payment of Carl Grissom and Gordon is aware of this. They want to try and put an end to it all. This is what they're trying to do, stop the corruption within the police force so that they can take control of the streets. Commissioner Gordon in these films, Pat Hingle, is he's an honourable man. He's a kind man. The way he moves out with the policeman in the scene, he doesn't just walk off, he you know embraces him and walks off. These are his boys, the police force, and he's got them under his wing, it suggests. This is where Alfred comes in and says, Gordon's left, maybe you want to take this entrance? We don't get to see him use a slide in this version of the film. Not the bat pole, yeah, much more sort of realistic in this first movie. So Alfred, of course, is uh, Michael Goff, classic British actor, stage and screen. Uh, before we go to Axis Chemicals, first of all, we see Michael Keaton studying the footage in the Batcave. It's the first time we see the Batcave. It almost looks like coal that it's made out of. And it's just this wall of monitors. You know, none of them are HD back then. It was all the tube box TVs, big old heavy things built into this, the wall of this Batcave. And he's got this big editing system before him and he can rewind and zoom and listen and then we cut to axis chemicals the shootout at 
Axis Chemicals, which I just think is, it is a fantastic scene. I remember that when I first watched Batman, I remember as kids going back, as I said, we watched it on a pirate copy and you couldn't always tell what was happening in the shots. And it looked a lot more violent, especially the the Axis chemical plant scene where Batman shoots someone with a grappling hook and then leaves them hanging. Back in the day when we was watching it on a pirate VHS, me and my friends believed that Batman had shot the grappling hook through his face and he was hanging by his face. And now when I watch it, I'm like, how did we ever even think that? (laughs) Um, And also the bit where one of the goons is running along down the corridor and Batman whacks his arm up. We all thought that he was stabbed him with all the spikes down his arm. But Batman isn't like that. He'd sooner have people arrested than killed. You know, Eckhart's handing out the sheets of paper. Jack Napier, shoot to kill. The first shot of the Axis chemicals. You've got all the police cars and that in the foreground and then in the background, a glorious matte painting. We see Jack Nicholson, Jack as Jack Napier, and Bob, who shifts listlessly on his feet as they pop the safe and it's empty. And then Jack Nicholson's aware... That they've been, we've been ratted out here, boys. Be careful. So, all hell is about to break loose. And this it was always one of those amazing scenes as a child. It was iconic. It was, oh, it was just great. But the police, the police, they look, they look pretty cool. They're all dressed in sort of their leather jackets. And then all the gangsters are dressed like gangsters. They all got the jewelry hats. And then we see Michael Keaton pulling, comes down in his black suit. And I love the look of it. You know, even now, what looking at it, the helmet does seem a little bit too big, perhaps. But I don't know, it's just great. And this is where, for the first time now, Commissioner Gordon has seen Batman. And he's looking up at him as that, that guy is just hanging from the grappling hook. So Jack Napier's, you know, you have to remember that with this film, Jack Nicholson took the top billing. It was his name at the front of the, the film. And it's almost his film throughout to be honest it's his evolution we see it's his origin story at this point batman is already batman we find out more about batman as it's it's sort of as the story goes on we find out about the background and about his parents but it's jack nicholson's character that we are following another thing that you do find out throughout the film is that jack nicholson jack napier was the murderer of batman's parents that's another thing that sam ham the writer holds his hands up and says no I had nothing to do with this. <laughs> it all seems a bit too elaborate. The Joker didn't need to kill Batman's parents. So it's just another example of how the writing chopped and changed as this film went on. And I think it, it also coincided with the, like a, there was a, a screenwriter's strike when they was producing this film. And um, when they come to do the rewrites, it was really people who shouldn't have been doing rewrites were doing the rewrites as i said there was studio intervention but i'm pretty sure that it was tim burton's idea to have bruce's parents be killed by jack napier and have that connection between the uh, the two characters so jack nicholson and jack and batman they first meet and i mean this was another shot in the pirate copy where the joker gets hit through the face by a ricocheting bullet um and you couldn't really tell what was going on. And when he's hanging off of that thing and Batman's trying to save him, the blood on the pirate copy just looked disgusting. It looked like his face was torn up to us. You know, our little imag- imaginations, 10-year-old imaginations, seeing more in this pirate copy than was actually there. So by this point, Jack Nicholson, he's killed Eckhart. He's knocked him out. He's got shot in the face. He's over the railing. Batman tries to save him, but he just can't. 
and then he falls into this vat of chemicals and this is when he becomes he has this permanent grin on his face what i don't understand the grin you know this is what i mean it doesn't none of this really makes sense to me but he has the grin on his face okay yeah it's turned his his skin white perhaps it'd probably just sort of melt but it is great the shot where uh Batman's trying to escape and the shadows here and there and then you see from a distance the smoke come up and then the wings come out and he just flies up and Commissioner Gordon's like, right, we keep a lid on this until we find out more. Just a great scene, great end to a great scene. And again, yeah, we haven't needed to hide Batman at all. Straight in with it and you never tire of seeing. You just want Batman in this film. You know, you want him throughout. The Bruce Wayne scenes are okay, but you just can't wait till he's Batman again, can you? Especially as like a 10-year-old a child watching it. Now, we're running out of time here. So I've sort of been talking about the film in order and out of order at the same time. So I've covered a lot of what I need to cover. We've got up to the basically the Joker has just become the Joker. We, obviously, we see the scene where he becomes the Joker. Uh, it's all filmed in like... This is a nice Tim Burton-style shot with the uh, the mad doctor there with all his gnarly sort of rusty bloodstained tools you've got the, the jokers all wrapped up but he's got his back to us he's in silhouette and uh, as he's unraveling him and then he shows him the mirror and you just that's when jack nicholson starts that manic laugh and he, he becomes the joker he smashes the mirror smashes the light out and, and walks out only to go and then kill uh, jack palance and Palance has probably only done like two days of filming here. Is it literally all his shots have been in that same location? But obviously, we need to see Jack Nicholson moving towards us in the shadows. And the closer he gets to Jack Palance, Jack Palance realizes it's Jack uh, Napier. And then uh, the closer he gets, you can just start to make out the white face, the creepy smile. And then when he's right there, he steps into the light. Jack is dead, my friend. You can call me Joker. And then begins his sort of rampage across the city then but his infatuation as well he becomes really egotistical he wants all the press you know and then they keep the press keep on about the batman when you know at the beginning of the film they didn't want to know anything about the batman alex knox was ridiculed whereas now all we hear is the batman is in the papers and jack nicholson is like doing all these sort of tyrannical manacle brutal attacks on the city to get his name in the paper, <laughs> you know, he wants to see his face on the one dollar bill. He's the biggest egotist you can think of. But Batman keeps getting the uh, the press. Uh, not fair on him. So I mean, there's there's loads of other scenes that sort of come between now and and the end. We've talked roughly about the the scene in the museum, the party man scene, where again he's got the makeup on. This is the thing as well when he meets the gang bosses and he's got the the skin coloured makeup over his white skin and he uses the hand buzzer. You know, he's starting to do jokery things with the, the manacle hand buzzer and uh, he kills the bloke, fries him. Oh it's getting hot in here. We're gonna have hot time in the old town tonight. A line that actually pops up in the second Batman as well, Batman Returns, when uh, Catwoman goes to fry Max Shrek, I think she says that, or it pops up somewhere anyway. But yeah, then he starts wiping the skin-coloured makeup off, and he's got the white makeup underneath. And then in the in the scene in the museum, Vicky Vale throws the water over his face, and it runs the makeup 
again, the skin colour makeup that he's got on to disguise his white face starts streaking and he looks awesome. That's why I said earlier, he looks great in that scene. He's got that purple beret and with the water streaking down and that's a really sinister sort of look and it's almost like the Heath Ledger look, isn't it? A bit later on, it doesn't look so tidy. It's not so pristine. Uh, It's a good look. Um, and that's the first time that Batman meets the Joker as well. He rescues Vicky Vale and then they go out in the Batmobile. So let's talk about the Batmobile and the Batwing. I mean, the Batmobile was a great design. It's still, to me, my favourite. I don't like the Christopher Nolan Batmobile at all. There's nothing batty about it. You know, it's just, it's like a tank sort of thing, isn't it? It's not, it doesn't do it for me. Whereas the Batmobile in this and the Batwing... You know, I had the toys of those. Absolutely loved them. The Batwing was brilliant. You had a trigger and a handle underneath, so you flew it. You held it like a gun, and you could fly it, and then the trigger would shoot out bullets out of it. The scene with the Batwing, when you watch it now, especially in the HD on the Blu-ray, does it just looks like a model, a toy being driven down like a model village, you know? Uh, there's nothing real about it. It's it's decent enough, you know. It's like I say, it's a good design, and I do love the shot where the bat wing goes up in front of the moon, sort of makes a, a bit of a bat symbol before ducking back down again. But yeah, you know, you know, you've all seen Batman. You know the story. You know the the showdown at the end. Uh, the Joker throwing the money out, get, luring everyone out into the streets just so he can gas them, and then Batman coming along and stealing all the balloons. You've got um before they go and have their showdown in the church tower which we've already discussed earlier on anyway yeah i think i've i think i've covered enough here in this episode i hope you lot think i have as well so yeah if you've enjoyed this podcast there's loads of us there if you've only just found us please do subscribe to the podcast give us a follow leave a comment leave a rating on wherever you can it's always appreciated, you know, this is done in my own time, just out of passion, really, for my enjoyment of films. I don't get any sort of money for it. So if you look can help sort of generate some interest, that would be great. I've also started, as you know, as you may well know, I've got a YouTube channel now as well, where I revisit the podcast episodes. I edit them down into sort of smaller, shorter bite-sized episodes, taking them from like an hour down to like 20 minutes and doing like pictorial podcast over there with images from the film um so please do look up wn movie talk podcast over on youtube as well subscribe to us on there there's some really great videos and a lot more to come as well so that's slowly creeping up um at this point of recording this we've got about 150 subscribers i think so yeah if we can get some more that'll be great but anyway batman so a film that i loved then I watched again 10 years later and I didn't like so much. And then I've just watched again another 10 years later and, and yeah, quite thoroughly enjoyed it again. You know me, I get a bit bored of all the uh, superhero films. But yeah, Batman, definitely worth having on your list. And Batman Returns, I might even talk about Batman Returns at another point because out of the two, I absolutely love Batman Returns. It's much more of a Tim Burton film and well worth a look anyway thank you all for listening and uh, i will see you all again as soon as possible i know it used to be a weekly podcast and now you're lucky if you get a podcast episode out of me once every three months but like i say i'm focusing at the moment on the youtube channel trying to get that up and running 
Um, but I will come back for another episode of this. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you all again soon. Chase. Chase.